Like Dave said earlier, my name's Will. I'm the student pastor here, um, which is one reason I should never uh, sit in front of my students while they sing um, such great truths. Uh, to hear them say words like, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Um, to hear them confess that um, makes me near unable to preach. But if y'all will, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Zechariah chapter 3. While you're finding it, if it might take you a little while, and it's the second to last book in the Old Testament, I want to tell you a story about a monk. So in the early 1500s, there was a Roman Catholic monk, and he had a problem. You see, it was the practice of every young priest in that day to go to the monastery and give a confession to his father confessor. And as a matter of routine, the brothers would come into the confessional and they would say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. Hear my confession. And then the confessor would ask, the, well, what did you do? Um, well, in the monastery, I mean, it's a monastery, so it'd be things like, well, after lights out last night, I used a candle for three extra hours. Or yesterday in the lunch hall, I coveted Brother Brian's chicken leg. To quote one medieval scholar, I mean, how much trouble can you really get into in a monastery? But there was this one monk. And he would come to the confessional and he would say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been 24 hours since my last confession. And he would begin to recite the sins that he had committed over the past 24 hours. But there was a problem. It wouldn't take him five minutes or 10 minutes. It would take him two hours, three hours, four hours, to the point where it was driving the confessors in the monastery crazy. Nobody wanted to get this guy because he just went on and on and on and on. But it makes sense in a way because the reigning theology of the day said that you had to work hard enough to merit the grace that was given to you. And so if you were keenly aware of the fact that you did not merit much grace, then you were probably going to confess a lot. So he went on for years doing just this. But it was going to happen one day finally when he was going to be ordained, and he was going to celebrate his first mass as a priest. But then something worse happened. See, this monk, he was widely known in his university for a few things. He was known for being brilliant. He's incredibly smart in the biblical studies department. He was also considered a great preacher. But when he got to the moment in the mass during the prayer of consecration, where he would utter um, the words he had memorized so many times, it came to that point in the Mass, and he froze. He began to tremble. Tears welled up in his eyes. His mouth opened and his lips moved, but nothing came out. And you could, when it's described, it's like you can feel the congregation trying to will the words out of his mouth. His father was there and hid his face in shame that his son couldn't even get through the simple celebration of the Mass that he had memorized thousands of times. But this monk explained later that it wasn't a mental lapse. He hadn't forgotten. What happened was he began to contemplate the idea that he was a desperately sinful and guilty human and that he would have the audacity to hold in his guilty hands the precious body and blood of Jesus. The monk was so overcome with his unworthiness that he froze at that moment. But this monk that we know as Martin Luther was mastered by one frightening truth. 
It's a horrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy God when you find yourself sinful and unclean. This morning, we're going to look at the story of a biblical character who seemed to have a similar position as our friend Martin Luther. He finds himself face to face with God, set to be condemned. His name's Joshua. He's the high priest, and he has dirty clothes. Now, this sermon is not a sermon for people who just want tips for easier living. This is not a sermon for people who feel like they have their life together and just want to get through another Sunday. This is a sermon for sinful people, needy for grace from a God they've rebelled against. And if you, like me, find yourself keenly aware of your need for God's grace in spite of your sin, then follow me this morning as we examine Joshua's filth and Luther's guilt. By now, I hope you found your way to Zechariah chapter 3. And this text and this really whole book at first may seem a bit esoteric, difficult, and confusing. But at the end, it is going to give us a beautiful picture of who we are and what Jesus has done on our behalf. But before we get there, I do want to give you a little context for the book just so you can understand what's going on. You see, Zechariah was written about 20 years after Israel returned from the Babylonian exile, so in about 520 B.C. See, Israel had been suffering in Babylon for many, many, many years. Um, We're actually in the student ministry right now looking at the book of Daniel, which chronicles their struggles through the exile. So they had a hard time removed from their home, suffering in Babylon, but finally they've been sent back. But the problem is they've been sent back to a messed up, broken down Jerusalem that has none of its former glory. Well, there's two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, that were sent by God to minister to these people in this broken down Jerusalem to give them hope that they could rebuild the temple and they could rebuild the nation. After this horrible exile, God is writing to his people, assuring them that he is still committed to them and that he loves them and that he will soon send a king to save them. But they have one great problem. They don't have anybody to lead. No one qualified, at least. See, they have an unprepared administrator king named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was from the line of David, so there's some hope there, but he was under the thumb of the empire that sent him back. He couldn't really be king, and the title he held was administrator. So not a lot of hope there. And then they also had a guy named Joshua who was the high priest, but he was untrained, unqualified, and unclean. Was God meaning to tell Israel that they were to be brought back to their former glory by these two unqualified men? This morning, we're going to zoom in on one passage where God addresses this issue. And we're going to see that Zechariah's message to Israel is the same message that he has for me and you today, which is that when God calls his people to do something, he's the one who does the qualifying, he's the one who does the cleaning, and he's the one who does the sending. Even in the face of insurmountable odds, our God is a God who can make something out of nothing. And he will even with these people. So by now, I hope you're in Zechariah 3. We'll read the first three verses. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed 
with filthy garments. So to just set some context here, because that's really what these first three verses are doing, you have a vision of a courtroom in heaven. You all, for the most part, understand what a courtroom is and how it works. You have a defendant, you have a prosecutor, and you have a judge. Well, in this scene, you have three characters. You have somebody standing to accuse, you have somebody who is accused of a crime, and then you have a judge. And see, here's the thing. This is just a regular old trial scene in heaven. And we love trial scenes, right? Like, in America, trials are big business. You can turn on the TV at almost any diner in America, and the first thing that pops up is Judge Judy. Now, for some of you more refined people who who don't watch stuff like that, you know, you may watch something like Supreme Court Outcomes. But all that to say, our country is really into the drama of the court. We love to watch and see and unfold what might happen in a courtroom at any given time. We love trial scenes, and here we get sort of a look into a heavenly one. We get to watch the scene in heaven and see exactly what's going on. Well, here's what's happened. There's a crime scene, and the crime is that the priest is wearing dirty clothes. The occasion for this trial is that Joshua, the high priest meant for the new temple, is ceremonially unclean. See, verse 3 tells us that his clothes are filthy. But filthy doesn't really even begin to describe the predicament that Joshua has found himself in. You see, the Hebrew word for filthy here is actually, um, it's toned down a little in English. It's just the Hebrew word for feces or excrement. See, this is a smelly, disrespectful, gross situation. This is not where you want to be if you're the high priest. The priest is standing before God with holy garments covered in the most unholy of substances. There is not a worse situation you could find yourself in if you're the high priest of Israel at this time. You see, you have a very important job as high priest. Your job is to represent two different ways. You represent the people to God, but you also represent God to the people. And you're supposed to have all these kind of qualifications that come along with playing this very important intermediary role. But this really sums up Israel's entire situation after the exile. You see, you have this former glory turned gross and filthy. You have an unfinished temple, an unmotivated people, and an unqualified and unclean high priest. At this point, everything about God's people scream unworthy. Even their high priest was God finally going to be done with them. And after all, we would understand if he would be, right? Because if you've read the Old Testament, at every turn, God has showed his grace to his people and they've rebelled. He's given him their law and they've rebelled. He saved them time and time again and they've rebelled. He sent them into exile and they've rebelled. Might this just be the time that God washes his hands of this filthy people? And I do just really want you to feel how how significant this crime that Joshua's committed is. You see, clothes were essential to the priestly duty. In Exodus 28, when when God was giving the instructions for how the priest was supposed to act in the tabernacle, he gave Aaron and his sons very specific garments that they were supposed to wear as they served in God's temple. The get-up was like a pristine collection of sashes and fabrics and jewels and turbans, and this was most likely the most expensive garment in all of Israel. This wasn't just like, you know, the suit you wear to work on Thursday. This was irreplaceable. 
This was uncleanable. This was the one thing that existed for that one job. And it's been messed up. And, and his clothes were a very real picture of both the glory of the creator that he served and the importance of the people which he represented. See, he had jewels on his chest that were supposed to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he carried a huge responsibility with those clothes. He was the one who represented the people to God. So, so as the people sinned, he represented them and made sacrifices on their behalf. He also represented God to the people in that when the sacrifices were made, he went and gave resolution or absolution to the people. But how can he represent these people to God in the first place if he's unclean? I mean, if you look in Leviticus 22, it says exactly what he's going to say, what should be said to him. It says, say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout all your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. You had one job, Joshua, and you failed. And it's with that great responsibility on his shoulders that he shows up to this heavenly courtroom filthy. And the biggest problem isn't even that he's standing representing the people as filthy. The biggest problem is really that he's supposed to represent God back to the people. And how could he possibly do that in this state? He's in God's court. And things are not looking great for Joshua. But as an aside, um, I think every pastor and parent and Sunday school teacher and mentor has wrestled with the Joshua problem at one point or another. How am I supposed to tell the good news, God's word to the people when I'm as messed up as I am? You see, you can have all the qualifications and training. You can have all the skills and style. You can know all the answers, but at the end of the day, no one knows the darkness of your own heart more than you do, and it cries out dirty. As I prep messages um, for my students, I'm consistently reminded how much I don't even live up to the messages that I prep. As I watch students begin to lead for the first time, I watch them come to me and be like, oh my goodness, I don't have it in me. And they're exactly right. Because much like Luther from the introduction, every single one of us should be living with a deep and abiding fear that someday people are gonna find out just how bad we are. And some of us live in fear regularly that someday um, we think we're fooling God and that someday he will actually find out the true extent of our problem. I think in one way or another we can all relate to Joshua. But we're introduced to this other character, Satan. In the Hebrew it's just Hasatan, which is the accuser. Satan's not a proper name, it's just a Hebrew word for the accuser. So if you want to know who Satan is and what Satan does, he walks around ready to accuse. At the core of who he is, that's what he does. He accuses people. He wanders around to find sin and accuse sinners before God. And man, with Joshua, he has a great case. The best case. He's standing here, in essence, with the murder weapon and a note of intent. He's got Joshua red-handed. Joshua is standing here in dirty clothes in the courtroom. Joshua is going down. 
And you can see Satan begin to take the stand and Joshua's head begin to hang in shame because the accuser has him red-handed. Now, not many of us like to be accused. I know I don't. We hate it when people critique us. None of us like to be critiqued. Now, the worst part of critique, at least in my estimation most of the time, is when the critique or the accusation you receive towards yourself is true. That's what really makes it hurt, is when somebody brings a charge against you and they're right. They found you out. You're not hiding anymore. You see, if someone accused me of being fast, extremely athletic, and wealthy beyond all measure, it would not affect me. Because it's not remotely true. I would just laugh it off, as all of you did, looking at me. You know, accusation that's not true kind of bounces off for the most part. But when the enemy stands to accuse me of that which is true, it hurts so deeply. When Satan points his finger of accusation at your most obvious faults, your deepest insecurities, your failures, and your inabilities, and, and it's the worst because you know that everything he says about you is true, everybody else just hasn't found it out yet. It's true that you don't measure up. You are worse than anyone knows. You're not as good a husband or a wife as everybody thinks. You do have a lust problem that you're hiding. You are greedy. You are selfish. You are too young or too old to do anything for the Lord. You are driven by personal gain, not holiness. You're not as committed as you should be. You're not as generous as you should be. You failed your kids. You've not kept God's law. It's all true. Every bit of it. And you can stand accused of that and Satan will be right. And he fully intends to use that which is true about you to crush you. He fully intends to use it to make you live in the reality that you are as bad as you know you are. And he wants you to sit in it. And so what Satan does is he gathers up all of this accusation, all of these things that are true about you, and he brings your failures to God and he places them there and he says, look at this pathetic, underwhelming, unworthy servant. And friends, that is exactly what we are. And it was this very thing this depth of accusation, this pain, this hurt that drove Martin Luther actually to start the Protestant Reformation. Because you see, if your whole life is under the fact that you have to be good enough to merit God's grace for you, you're going to live a sad, shackled life because you are as corrupt as you think. They told him he needed to work out the good in his own heart, but he knew that there was no good left to work with. He needed something from outside of himself to solve his very real internal problem. He needed another righteousness, one from outside. That's why Luther said in his sermon several years later called Two Kinds of Righteousness, he said that we needed an alien righteousness, the righteousness of another instilled from outside. As we look at this next part of the story, we'll reread verses two through five here. It says, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away 
your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was setting by. So what you see here, I don't want you to miss this. What's happening in this story is as Satan climbs the stand to rightfully accuse Joshua of everything that's true, God rebukes Satan. As the accuser stands to speak, it's the Lord who rebukes the accuser. If anyone in this passage needed rebuking, it would seem like it should be Joshua, the one who would dare to enter the Lord's courts unclean, the filthy one. But we learn in verse 2 that God actually chose Joshua. God chose Israel. He calls them a brand snatched from the fire. He's essentially saying, who are you, O accuser, to tell me who I can set apart and who I can't? Just sit in the strangeness of that moment. The judge has thrown out the evidence against the guilty party. He's actually furious that anybody would even bring that evidence before him. You see, that's because God's deep love for Joshua and Jerusalem apparently overshadows the strength of the accusation. Now, you all know where this is going, but sit in that tension for a minute. Apparently, any of the evidence brought against this filthy priest will be declared inadmissible on the basis of God's love for that priest. And that raises quite a few questions for us. Like, is this just? Is this righteous? Can he really just forgive? But it also answers one big question that I'm sure Joshua was asking, and that's how the heck will I get out of this? It doesn't look like Joshua's going to face the judgment that he so desperately deserved. So what happens is God actually then takes Joshua and he gives him new clothes. The angel here gives a shocking command. In the face of this detestable crime and unpreparedness, he says to take the clothes off of this man and give him new clothes. The one who should have been most offended by the clothes takes responsibility for the solution. See, the angel here says two things, and I don't want you to miss both of them because they're both so important. He says both that I have taken your iniquity away and I have given you new clothes. Those are two separate things. See, the angel sees something. God sees something here that maybe we're tempted to miss on the front end. He sees that the clothes are not the real problem. They're just a symptom. The real problem caused the problem of the clothes, and the problem is Joshua and the people's sin. In a sense, Joshua really is representing the people before God. For real. Because he's dirty just like them. So the angel comes and he deals with both of the problems. He both takes away the iniquity and dresses him up with new clothes. He takes the dirty vestments and he makes them pure. And you see, this is important because I don't want you to move past this too quickly. God does two things when he saves us. He takes away sin and he gives us a new righteousness. We so often think about what Jesus has done for us in terms of just forgiveness, but it's so, so much more. Yes, God takes away sin. Yes, God forgives you, but he also gives us his very righteousness. 
Jesus forgives us by taking, his, uh, by taking our filth and sin on him and exalts us by giving us what's rightfully his. The gospel is such good news because I have not just been brought to net neutral before a holy God to mess up again. I'm given the standing perfect righteousness of Jesus in my behalf so that my problem is fully and forever taken care of. And this is what Martin Luther called the glorious exchange. Like it says in 2 Corinthians, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God takes the sin and he provides the righteousness. And this is a doctrine that theologians have called double imputation, the doctrine of double imputation. My sin is imputed or given to Jesus and his righteousness, his glory, his goodness is imputed to my account. In essence, we trade places. Is not the grace of Jesus amazing in the face of true accusation, in the face of how bad you really are? God's gospel both takes care of your problem and gives you your solution. This is why when we sing songs, I want y'all to really sing that say these truths. When we say something like, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, we can say that because we do rightfully stand guilty, but Jesus makes our plea for us. It's why when we sing songs like Christ, our hope and life and death, we can really mean it because it's not anything that we bring to the table. It's what Jesus brings to us. It's the best news in the world. And it's all of that wrapped up together, all of that good news about what Jesus has done on our behalf, what God has done for Joshua, that gives the context for what he asked of Joshua next. This is what makes the next part good news. See, Joshua is going to be given a commission. He's going to be given a command. But he's only given a command in light of what we already know. See, we'll look at verses 6 and 7 here. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and I will give you charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So here's what happens. God commissions Joshua. The angel gives Joshua two commands here. He tells them one, walk in my way. And then he says, and keep my charge. See, he says that if Joshua now goes and does this, then he's going to have access to God in a way that no one's ever had access to God before. So walk in my ways is a fairly simple command. He's just saying, in essence, that Joshua needs to now go keep the law and live in light of the righteous life that God's commanded him. Keep my charge is a little more specific. This is talking more about his priestly charge, his priestly duties. He's still supposed to go and faithfully discharge the work that a high priest was supposed to do. And if he does this, he's going to enjoy a new kind of communication with God that has not been enjoyed by any high priest with God before this. In this post-exile, podunk era of Israel, this once dirty priest is going to have intercessory access to God in a way that Aaron could have only dreamed of. This text is a beautiful example of the very good news that God is not a God who calls the qualified, but qualifies the called. You see, Joshua is standing where he shouldn't be standing, enjoying glory he shouldn't be enjoying because of what God did 
for him. Now, we're tempted to read passages like this, I think, when we hear commands that have um, consequences attached to them, as though, so like, Joshua messed up, he got dirty, now God's bringing him back to net neutral, and if he messes up again, then we might have to repeat this whole scenario all over again. But that's not what's happening here. Not at all. And I'll tell you why. Um, when I was in my sophomore year of college, I was sitting in New Testament 2 with Tom Schreiner, um, who was just the sweetest man you'll ever meet. Um, and he's lecturing through, I think it was the book of Ephesians. And he was lecturing through it, and he said a little sentence that changed my life. He doesn't know it changed my life. It doesn't sound like a sentence that would change somebody's life. But he said this. He says, in Scripture, indicatives always ground imperatives. Now, you may hear that and think, that doesn't really sound like earth-shaking, life-changing, soul-moving good news. But it is, and I'll tell you why. Think about it this way. An imperative is just an academic word for a command. If I give you an imperative, I'm telling you to do something. I'm giving you a task. An indicative is a word or a statement that indicates what something or someone has done beforehand. It indicates. Now, in the Bible, and this is very important that you guys get this right, because getting this right is the difference between living a life shackled by the law and living a life in the freedom of grace. In the Bible, commands or imperatives are only ever given in the context of indicatives, the recognition of what has been done. I'll put it more simply. The Bible never expects us to obey God for grace. It only ever expects us to obey from grace. Obedience in the Bible is never driven by a desire to earn God's favor. Obedience is driven by a freedom found in knowing you've been forgiven. Our friend Luther put it this way in that um, Two Righteousnesses sermon earlier. He says that grace produces the obedience our human nature could never render on its own. See, obedience flows like a river from grace. It's not like a mountain climb to it. But we so often live and act like God's love for me is dependent on how good or not good that I do. Because we're all at the depths of our being legalists. We all want to earn our keep. None of us want to be given a handout. We all want to be able to, at the end of the day, turn in our report sheet and God tell us you did a good job. See, we so want God to give us an attaboy for obedience in mission or Bible reading or anything else, when in reality, he has already given us a full and final well done in the work of Jesus. And that changes everything, right? If I just show up to church out of duty, so that maybe God won't smite me. Or if I just read my Bible because I'm afraid God might be angry. Or if I just go on mission because I think that's what people like me are supposed to do, I will live a life of unhappiness because I will always be placing myself under a law that I know I can never live up to. But if I obey from what Jesus has done on my behalf, then that changes everything because then attendance and Bible reading and mission and evangelism doesn't become a duty, it becomes a joy. Because I know what Jesus did for me and I'm getting to share that with other people. And so today, listen, 
If his approval for you or for me hinges on my obedience, then I am destined for a work that ends in my failure. But if my obedience to his grace towards me is what I live from, then I can live a sanctified life of freedom working hard because I know my approval is fixed in heaven. So today, if you're trying to earn God's approval by how you work, if you're trying to clean yourself up, if you're trying to scrub those robes clean with your own righteousness, hear me, it will not work. But let me introduce you to my friend Joshua, who definitely didn't do everything right who definitely continued to fail, but who time and time again went back to the God in whose courts he was given clean clothes, who stood before God with a grace that he didn't earn. So may we be marked as a church, not by primarily coldly following rules and getting things right, but may we instead be marked as a people who are needy for and possessed by the grace that makes us pure through no work of our own, Obedience itself, friends, and this is important, obedience itself is not the mark of a believer. It could just be the mark of a really sneaky legalist. But grace-fueled obedience is the mark of a believer. That's why that sentence about indicatives and imperatives changed my life, and I hope it does yours too. Because I lived a life worried that if I didn't do everything right, that God was going to be disappointed in me. That if I slipped up or lied or lusted or was proud, that I was somehow going to harm myself um, in my relationship with God. It's finding out that that's not the case completely revolutionized how I lived my Christian life. It's like uh, Matt Chandler once said, God is not in love with some future better version of you. He knows what he bought when he bought it. Indicatives and imperatives. Write it on your heart. The last question that's raised is how? How can God just do this? How can God just forgive guilty people? I said earlier that I thought this raised some questions. It's good news for Joshua, but, it is, but is it good news for our view of God? See, in verses 8 through 10, we're going to learn how God intends to take care of the biggest problem. If you will, read with me. It says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Well, there's the question, right? How is God going to forgive Joshua and not become unjust. Does just moving past and giving him clean clothes and denying Satan his right to really freely and truly accuse Joshua, does that make God the bad guy? Does that make God unfair? See, we spend a lot of time, and even in student ministry, I've spent a lot of time answering this question, why doesn't God just save everyone? When in reality, the question each and every one of us should be asking is why does God save anyone? See, that's the more pressing question. How can God move past the sin of any single person? 
Well, and the answer in typical prophetic fashion is he's taking care of it. And he says he's taking care of it with a branch and with a stone. Now, that might not immediately ring any bells to you, but when we think about the branch, you see that in verse 8 here. Um, He says he's going to bring a branch that's going to bring righteousness to the land. Think about it this way. That is rich Old Testament messianic imagery. See, Zechariah is drawing on prophecies that were given earlier by people like Isaiah and Jeremiah during the exile, that there would be a branch that would grow out of the seat of David. And and hear how hopeful this would be because Zerubbabel is barely right now holding down the title of administrator as Israel's puppet king. It was hard to imagine a day when David's descendant would reign for real on the throne forever. But God's giving a promise through Zechariah that, that that's going to happen someday. Israel will one day have a king. So that doesn't still answer our question, but but God's getting there. He says, one day I'm going to bring this branch and he's going to be a king. And then it gets a little more complicated. He brings up a stone with seven eyes. And this one's a little more confusing. Um, As I was studying this week for this passage, um, I got really tripped up on this because when you look at commentaries and what different people say, everybody has a different opinion on what this stone is, just because of the confusing language. Now, there's a lot of different options, and I won't bore you with all of them, but I'll give you the two main ones. The first one is that this stone is referencing the future temple that's going to be rebuilt. That could make sense, I think. Um, It's referencing a future temple. Jesus is going to call himself the cornerstone. He's going to say he's building out of holy stones a new church. So that could work. But to me, that feels like a departure from actually where we're at. Um, It could work, but it doesn't seem right. I think the second option is actually the better one, which is this. Um, Joshua has not been fully reclothed yet. Because any of you who really know your Exodus 28 know that there's one piece of the priestly garments that were missing in this text. And that's the breastplate or the ephod that's supposed to go on his chest, and on it it's going to have stones that represent the people of Israel. We haven't yet seen that come up. Now, in the text here, and this is going to get a little um, in the weeds, but it says that the stone has seven eyes. Some of y'all, by seven eyes, you might see a little tiny number in the top of the word, and if you go down to the bottom of your Bible, it might say, or facets, or pairs of eyes. Um, The word for eyes in Hebrew is just referring, I think, here to like two eyes. So if you have seven pairs of eyes, how many eyes do you have? Fourteen. That's right. Now, on the breastplate that the priest wore, there were fourteen stones. There were twelve that represented the people of Israel to God, but there were also two stones called the Uman and Thuman that were there, and they were supposed to help the priest in decision-making and things like that. So on this breastplate were fourteen stones. So what I think is happening in this passage is he's saying, I'm going to bring a king but I'm also going to bring a priest who does a better job than you. There's going to be a high priest one day who can actually fully and finally take care of the sins of the people. A high priest who can truly represent the people to God and God, from the pe- and God to the people and get rid of iniquity in a single day. You see, Joshua's work would never end. He never got to say, good, I've finished with the iniquity of the people. 
His whole life was devoted to recasting and recasting the iniquity of the people. But God's saying one day there will be a high priest who can do this the right way. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua are restarting a movement that will lead to prosperity and joy for God's people eventually. It ends with verse 10 where it says, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is a return to the prosperity that Israel would have enjoyed at one point where people owned their own land and had wealth and prosperity. He's saying one day this exile living is going to be over and it's going to be over because of what this branch and this stone do. Now ultimately we know the rest of the story. We learn that both this high priest and this king, this branch and this stone are actually one and the same the Lord Jesus. You see, he was the one who would in one day take away iniquity from the land. How could Joshua or somebody like me receive righteousness? Because in a shocking turn, God himself takes away the sin. He makes propitiation for the sin. That's what Jesus does. So God is not at any point unjust because your sin will be punished. But for those of us in Jesus, it's punished in the sacrifice of Jesus and not in us. And that's why it's the best news in the world. But here's how that works in this passage. You see, Joshua receives a clean turban because Jesus took on his head a crown of thorns. Joshua was clothed in pure and rich clothing because Jesus had his robes stripped and divided. Joshua was found clean though he was dirty because Jesus was found dirty in spite of being clean. The accused stands righteous before the throne of God because Jesus stood accused being righteous. Joshua could stand before the throne of God because Jesus left the throne of God. What a story, what a savior, and it's true. Jesus did all of that so that people like me and you could come to know the good news that he is the one who makes people clean. And our friend Luther eventually found the answer to his fear of the holy and the accusation. See, late in Luther's life, when he had a friend struggling with the same kind of fear that he had struggled with his whole life, he wrote him a letter, and in this letter he said this, He said, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak like this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made a satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. What a turn from the man who at first couldn't even stand to be in the presence of God who now knew the glory that came in being made clean by his Savior. You may have walked in here today thinking that you're not the kind of person that is clean enough to be here. You may have walked in here thinking that you're just too dirty, too messed up, you've made too many mistakes, you're involved in the wrong kinds of things, and this just isn't the kind of place for you. You may think what's deep down on the inside, what you know about yourself is untouchable and uncleanable, but I invite you this morning to take hold of the God who specializes in making dirty people righteous. See, the good news of the gospel is that now because of what Jesus has done, he invites any who would come 
to participate and to partake of this good news, he will take your sin and he will give you something far, far better. And see, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, is it not? We celebrate what he's done for us. We don't have to fear when we approach the table because Jesus has vanquished our fear in his death. We're, we're about to take the supper, which is a meal for people who are baptized believers in Jesus. I encourage you this morning, if you're not that, maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, use our remembering as a way to see the gospel. Use this moment as a time to reflect on the good news that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that people like you could know him. And for those of us who are in Christ, Today we get to celebrate the good news that though I was unclean, he made me righteous. So if you will, um, take the elements that you have with you, and we'll read the words of institution. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to proclaim it in song. I do encourage you, though, if after the service, if you want to know what it looks like for you to have a relationship with this Jesus who makes dirty people clean, Come find one of us at the front during the song or in Guest Central afterwards. We would love to talk with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the blessings you've given to us. We are so thankful that you are the kind of God who saves people like us. We thank you for Joshua's story because in it we see our own story. A holy God who made a way for an unholy people. So we thank you today. May we live flowing from that good news. And may any here who don't know it trust in it today. And we ask all of this in the name of the one who is strong enough to do it, Christ Jesus our King. Amen.